0: Once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. Welcome to the Senior Warsong Podcast. My name is Mikey, your humble host, your common theologian, your Christian layman, your fellow regular dude, coming at you today with another Warsong meditation episode. So this is a spinoff from our last bigger episode called Show Yourself a Man and what the meditation episodes are, are there just things that that come to my mind as I'm building the manuscript and, and the notes for these episodes? You know, the Spirit's leading me according to the Word of God, and, and there's certain things that come to my mind that are kind of spinoffs from the core essence of the episode. And instead of digressing during that episode, I decided to do these meditation episodes. And to be clear, a meditation, biblically, To meditate simply means to think, and to biblically meditate means to fill your mind with the things of God, with God's truth. So what we are talking about today, one of the things we talked about in the Show Yourself a Man episode is one of man's core roles, according to God's design, is to protect. That is one of man's God-ordained roles he is called he is commanded to fulfill that role and to protect doesn't it's not just simply some abstract idea it is concrete in its ways and first and foremost we protect from the unseen from the spiritual we are called to protect the hearts minds and souls of those under our authority under our care our families our loved ones our neighbors but it also extends the spiritual call and command from God, who is spirit, calls us also to physically protect that which is under our authority. And that includes, if need be, to take physical action and maybe even violent action in order to protect that which we love. So we're gonna we're gonna flesh that out today during this meditation. We're gonna take that to a certain point how how far does that does that principle extend is it simply to my family to my neighbor or does it extend farther and i'm i'm going to argue that biblically as we look to establish a christian culture i'm going to argue that christianity in fact cultivates a militant citizenry that the true faith and true religion will create a society of men that are militant. Yes, driven by compassion and love, but because they are driven by compassion and love, there is a portion of their life and the way they live that prepares them to physically defend that which they love. So we're going to talk about that, my friends. We're going to meditate upon that. As we go through the scripture and through some principles, I'm going to make my argument. So I hope you enjoy this journey with me. If you want to support me, my friends, rate this podcast. Give it that old five star. Write a review in iTunes. I believe you can do that in Spotify. Spread the word on the socials. You can follow me on IG at Senior Warsong Christian. I also wrote a book a while back. I'd appreciate your support if you would check that out. It's called Senior Warsong Christian by Michael E. Winkleman. It is a guide to fighting the spiritual fight day by day. And it also has 60 days worth of devotional material. But other than that, I appreciate that the fact that you're even here, if you're listening this far into this, uh, be blessed, be encouraged. Remember who you are and who you're called to be. And if you are not a member of the elect, if you are not following the true religion, I encourage you, I call you to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so be who you were made to be. But with that, my friends, let's get into it. Let's rock and roll. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That is from Nehemiah chapter four. So we've established that one of the core roles of man is to be a protector. But as we apply our theology, we must ask the question, how far do we take this call? How far does God's command take this? Now, we've firmly established in the Show Yourself a Man episode that this isn't simply an abstract idea that just floats about in our head. And it's not only pertaining to the spiritual or unseen, but the spiritual command from our God who is spirit calls us to fulfill this command in the physical. It is expressed in the physical realm. So physically, there are times where we are called to protect those who are under our authority and our care. But to what extent? How far do we take that? as individuals, as people? Is that only if someone enters into my home to do my family harm, or my if I see my, my individual neighbor being uh, attacked on the side of the road? What if I'm a professional warfighter? What if I am a civil magistrate working in the capacity of the law enforcement realm and I bear the sword? To what extent do I physically protect? We're going to answer that question today. But let us start with firmly establishing a certain idea about how we are to live as Christians, how we are to engage the culture. So let's look at the Great Commission of Christ. right? The Great Commission of Christ, before his ascension, he calls to his apostles, and he tells them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe everything he has commanded and Christ says lo I am with you even to the end of the age so he calls us to make disciples of all nations to teach everything he commands and we must understand that the Bible the Word of God the inspired Word of God every syllable is Christ for Christ is the word he is the Logos and every syllable of Scripture is his word so we have to be careful with things like red letter Bibles right there's those Bibles where they'll highlight the words of Christ in red like during the Gospels when he was here on earth physically speaking but we should not exalt those words over any other word in All of Scripture, for all of Scripture is Christ. He, in the Spirit, inspired each author of each book to write down what they were to write down. So we must look to the entirety of Scripture to understand who we are to be as Christians and understand that every portion of the Word is essential and important and God-breathed. So in terms of the Gospel and its advancement, of souls being saved, of God doing his work through Christ, we trust God with the success of the gospel and its advancement. Undoubtedly, God is successful in the fulfillment of his decree that he will save for himself a special people. So inevitably, us as his special people, we have faith the gospel will be successful. We put our faith in God knowing he will fulfill his work And by his grace and mercy, we marvel that he will fulfill that work through us, his special people, his church. And so we must have faith that as nations, if we are to disciple peoples of the nations, we must have faith that God will be successful. And thus, these nations may in fact be filled with Christians. We're advancing the gospel. We're preaching it through the way we live and build our families and our churches and the cultures that surround them. God uses this and the preaching of the gospel to save souls, to gather them in. And there may be, in faith, we may have to look forward and say, hey, the gospel may in fact be successful in these nations, right? God is victorious. He will not fail in his endeavor. So this may in fact be a reality. So we must ask the question as Christians, how do we order society? Is there a a Christian way to order a society? Or is it just up to the powers that be during that time? So in other words, we have to ask as Christians, how do we order the culture? If we are, in fact, the majority within a nation, if Christ is fulfilling his saving work through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as he regenerates hearts, and it spreads, and it spreads, and more and more people come to the faith within the nation, we come together as a people and ask, how do we order our society? Is there a specifically Christian way to order our society? Is there a Christian culture? And the obvious answer is yes. We must not be satisfied with simply living in the culture of the times. For the word says we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. We must not be satisfied with this idea that seems to permeate the modern church that, well, I was born in this time and there's a a certain culture of this time, so I have to Just accept that culture, not give into it, but just hold out in my little Christian corner. And and I'll preach my gospel and I'll encourage people to seek Jesus in their own life. But it has no effect on the culture at large and the institutions at large. I don't think that's biblical. I think the word is clear. That Christ is a king and he is reigning now and through his church. He is conquering nations through the advancement of the gospel. And in recent years, there's been this concept, and I'll just speak to it real quick. And there's, there's way more powerful voices than mine that speak to this concept of Christian nationalism. And there are... There's obviously non-believers that just, you know, they shirk at the idea, you know. It's a theocracy. And there's even Christians that shirk at this idea. And first and foremost, I'll say, if I were to speak to someone about Christian nationalism, we must define our terms. Because, yes, me too, I'm cautious about the very term nationalism. uh, Because in a lot of ways, you know, that, that term will make the nation the absolute So when, when defining what we mean by, we have to define what we mean before we can have our conversation. It's like, it's like any, any conversation we have, any, any debate or argument, we must have a definition of terms so that we have a common language. We can ultimately understand what we're discussing. And that's the first thing I would do with Christian nationalism. I'd be careful because there's been in the past, there's been people that have claimed to be, you know, like Christian communists, which is. There's no way that can occur, right? Th- communism is the antithesis of Christianity, for it makes absolute a completely atheistic idea and worldview that governs everything else, and it subjugates Christianity underneath it. And if you look at history, it was trying to eradicate Christianity or any idea of God, for the state was the absolute authority. So the same thing with Christian nationalism. Are you, as a Christian, making the nation the absolute power? Well, then I'd say, I'm not. I'm not down with that. But the idea that as Christians, do we strive to have a nation filled with Christians? If that is indeed our definition of Christian nationalism, then as Christians, we should say yes. For it is good to be a Christian. It is not good to be an unbeliever. It isn't good. And so we should strive as a people living within a certain nation to Christianize that nation. We don't conquer by the sword. You know, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying, hey, Christians, grab your weapons and we're going to go door to door. If anyone doesn't declare Christ, it's either declare Christ or die. That is not the Christian way. That is against God's truth. We don't, we don't conquer by the sword. The word is very clear about that. We conquer through preaching the word and living the word and being led by God and and battling the ungodly and dark ideologies of our age and in the power of Christ and his wisdom by the spirit, planting churches and building communities of Christians that love their neighbors and are not afraid to preach the truth and stand against evil, and God, through his sovereign will and his providence, and by his grace, utilizes us as his special people to gather more into the fold. But we understand within God's kingdom, and according to his word, that there is a limited role of the sword. It's, it's not to advance Christianity, It's not to convert people. That's not the Christian role or the good role, the limited role of the sword. But we must understand it does have a role. It does. Man is commanded by God to physically protect. And man may be called to utilize the sword to defend And to protect. So as Christians we seek to establish a Christian culture within any nation that that is the gospel. Going into a nation of people as God's special people that are a part of a eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, entering in and preaching the gospel and establishing a Christian culture within that nation. For culture is the outward expression of what a people worships. And as we've spoken of in earlier podcasts, if we were to define worship, worship is the expression of what or who we value most. And that's why God makes it clear. We are to worship him and him alone, for he is of the highest value. He is God. And so we must strive for, as his people, to establish a culture that worships him, that expresses him as the highest value. And we should settle for nothing less. We preach the gospel and call all to repent and believe while living a life of worship. As Christian people within our communities, building, cultivating, establishing Christian culture within our families, within our churches, and within our local communities. So we must establish within our culture as Christian people that our men are to protect. They are called to protect. And we must teach them what that means, to what extent. That is is the point we're getting to here. And to this I say, we as Christians should cultivate a society of militancy. We should cultivate a society of militancy. Christianity cultivates a militant citizenry. As fathers, we should train our sons with a sense of martial discipline. We firmly teach them, why they fight, and when they fight. Under the authority of the spiritual and unseen, looking to God's word and to God himself and to the natural revelation of our existence, objective reality, we teach our sons right and wrong, and we teach them when it is right to physically fight and to defend. And then we take that universal principle and that universal good into the particular day by day reality of our, of our lives and of our, our discipleship of our sons. So we physically train them. We teach them how to physically subdue their bodies. We take them hiking. We teach them field craft, self-sufficiency, how to hunt, how to fish, how to garden, how to cultivate, how to build how to provide and then protect that which they provide and it goes on and on. And then we take it a step further that every one of our sons, whether God leads them to be bakers, artisans, engineers, farmers, they all have a basic level knowledge of weapons and tactics and communications as they are part of a local community of God-fearing men that understand that they may be called to bake and build and and you know draw beautiful art and cultivate all these other things, but at a moment's notice, they may be called as a local community to gather as God-fearing men and have a basic level of warfighting capability because they are called to defend their neighbors, their communities their people, and their place. This militant citizenry would be under the lordship of Christ, as all things should be. Like we said before, we're we're cultivating a society that worships the one true king. That is what true gospel advancement is. It is God's elect, his church going forth, into the nations preaching the good news and the Holy Spirit ministering that word to the hearts of men, regenerating those hearts, gathering those men into the fold of the church. And as that church grows and grows amongst a society, Christian culture will flourish. And part of this culture, as I am arguing, is a militant citizenry, but it is under the Lordship of Christ as it is filled with Christ-following and worshiping men. And this citizenry that trains at a basic level, each man, to in essence be a warfighter at a moment's notice, would fulfill the commandment to love our neighbors. For that is the law summed up, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors. And we are taking that command of love and as we think of all the possibilities that may occur, all of the all of the spiritual and physical threats against our neighbors, we understand that it is a possibility that they may suffer immensely from threats of violence. So we are called to defend our neighbors in love. And it's not just our next-door neighbor. If someone tries to rob them, it's not just our neighbor walking down the street or in the supermarket and we see someone violently threatening them and we individually protect them. No, we're taking that to the next level. We are building a society of love and thus a society of protection. Each man understands his role and his call. And so we stand ready as a people to protect our neighbors against threats of violence. And that violence can come from foreign invaders Societal collapse and banditry, tyranny, and persecution. And we understand that it is a citizenry that is militant, filled with dangerous men, for they are good men who understand the role as protectors that will stand together, united with the capability to look at any tyrant or persecutor or invader and say, not my neighbor, not my neighbor for I will love them and I will stand as a wall between you and them and we look at our modern age and it's it's because we've over institutionalized everything we live in a society that's governed by this postmodern way where we live in the present we don't establish ourselves within the timeline of history let alone in the redemptive timeline of the eternal god and so everything is in the now and we've tried to outsource responsibility to massive bureaucracies whatever responsibility we're supposed to have as individuals as families as a people as a community we try to outsource it to some bureaucracy to take care of us and in the Modern age of 911, we've outsourced personal, familial, and societal protection. And my friends, I speak to you as someone who is the civil magistrate. I work in law enforcement. I understand my limited role that God has given me, and I take it very seriously. And I do it to the utmost with the idea that I may be called to protect. Uh, the citizens that, that God has placed under my authority, that I may stand as a wall before them. I understand that role. But I, I understand that each citizen does not outsource their responsibility of protection to me as a civil magistrate, because that is not my primary role, and they are not to do that. You know, we, we embrace these advancements of the modern age with technology with 911 with with the ability to have emergency response because we as a christian people value life and god by his grace has progressed us as a society to where we have this technology where god can better utilize us to protect life but the civil magistrate's primary role is to punish evil If you look at Romans 13, if you look at Peter's epistles, that is the primary role. To be a servant for your good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. And yes, in the pursuit of punishing evil, which in essence is executing the laws of the land, there may be situations where the evildoer is being caught in the act, in the present, and in punishing them, we are protecting those who are in immediate threat of those evil actions. And that's a powerful thing. And that's a thing that that I personally and my fellow professionals train for. Those that take it very seriously, especially under the covering of God, understand our role and its importance. And we sharpen the edge each and every day so that we could stand in a gap for our fellow citizens. But this is a very rare occurrence, and really it's not our primary role or responsibility. The primary responsibility for protection is to each and every man of society. And under God's covering and and his word and his call, you are not allowed to outsource that. You are not allowed to outsource that. I mean, even the, the sword bearers that are professional war fighters or military, we as a society decided to have a standing army and air force and Navy to be that hedge. And that's a powerful thing. And it's one of the you know, primary roles of government in dealing with foreign policy of nations to protect their people from foreign invaders to have a, a coordinated approach to defense. But in our modern age, we've outsourced it completely without any notion that we as a people could at some point in history be threatened. It's such a foreign idea to us, but anyone that, that actually sets themselves within the objective reality of our history, of God's created order. I mean, you read any history book, we, <laughs> we are one incident away from possible societal collapse and mass anarchy and banditry, a foreign invasion. And it is still up to every man to stand and protect his people. So it should be a part of our Christian culture to say, you, oh man are called to be leader, protector and provider. And as protector, we will raise our sons into men that have basic level understanding and capability to war fight in order to fulfill the commandment to love their neighbor. And we must not forget this in our modern age. No matter how far we get, we, we advance, we must not step outside the bounds uh, that God has placed upon us according to his word of truth. We must not outsource the responsibilities given to us. And I spoke about this It's anything, any authority we have within our sphere of influence. I talked about this in Show Yourself a Man. As a father, I am the primary pastor of my children. It is my, my role with my wife alongside me. It is my primary responsibility to educate and disciple and teach my children the way. I do not outsource that responsibility to another man, to a pastor of a church or a Sunday school teacher or an educator. These are all powerful ministries and they are great, but they aid you as the father in your primary role of education. They aid you, but you are not to outsource that responsibility. So is with protection at the end of the day. I thank God for the military forces of this land. I was once a part of them. I understand their role and their call. But at the end of the day, God has given me the responsibility of protecting my family. All right, forgive me for the interruption with the phone call. Phone's on silent. We're good to go. This wouldn't seem like, uh, this idea wouldn't seem so foreign to really any other generation besides our, our postmodern generation, where we're led by this, this subjective idea of just the now and society should be a certain way now without seeding itself in reality. Throughout the ages, men knew that they must stand ready to protect their community you know, in the West today, we live too much uh, in the abstract and we, we don't have a sense of concrete thinking. We don't seat ourselves in our proper place. And so we, we have this bubble and we think that um, we can form this, this society that is just safe uh, by its very nature. And it's, it's unseated from, from reality from the created order. And any other generation knew that the men of the village, of the community, of the local community, they were all uh, called at any moment to protect their, their community against whatever threat that may be. If it was on a, a frontier or, or even within a, a realm or kingdom or republic, uh, they knew that there were there were threats of all kinds and that they could come together with their fellow brothers in the community and their fellow neighbors and citizens, and form a wall for their local community to protect them. And we've we've done away with that, and we've made it seem so foreign, and we've we've labeled it with all sorts of nasty labels. And even within Christianity, I think because of. Um, Unfortunately, we've subjugated Christianity to a lot of the postmodern worldview. We we've done away with true biblical masculinity, and we've formulated a Jesus that is our idol that is false, and therefore we go to his word based upon this false Jesus. And we don't understand our role as men, but this has always been our role, and our current state of our society does not neglect that objective universal principle that we should be protectors of our local communities. And as a part of that, we could gather with with our tribe and have a certain level of readiness And be equipped and understand the basic laws of warfare and tactics and know that whatever threat may come, we stand ready. And any governing authority that truly is threatened by this, I question your intent. If you truly desire to be a governing authority, a law enforcement official in a free republic, That is governed by Christian virtue. We should desire a strong militant citizenry that can guard themselves. I mean, you look at the ages. You you look at, uh, for the longest time, even, even the armies of a nation was comprised completely of citizen soldiers. You know, this idea of, professional standing armies or especially a police force very very modern in its idea and like i said i'm a cop and um it is my profession right now and i understand the importance of that profession it has a god-ordained role but that primary role is not protection That is not my primary responsibility for an individual. I seek to protect my neighbors in this profession. And I meditate each and every shift I come into work, the fact that I may need to enter that breach and give my life for another. And I ask God for the strength and the peace and the joy to do that to his glory. But that citizen is personally and primarily responsible for their safety. That man, that father, primarily responsible for the protection of his family. And the men of the community, primarily responsible for the protection of their local neighborhoods and communities. I mean, the Greeks, even the Romans, the uh, you know, our, our United States of America, in, in the beginning, it was citizen soldiers. It was men that had a primary profession, but when their people needed them, when their city, state, their polis, their local community, their frontier town needed them, they grabbed their personally owned equipment and they went to war with their fellow men of the local community to protect their people. And that should not be a foreign concept to us anymore. And as Christians, we should strive for that to be a part of our culture and raise our sons in it, knowing that they can fulfill their role as protectors in every capacity. I mean, for a current event example, look at Ukraine. Even the postmodernists that govern our institutions that demonize any idea of a modern minute man or citizen soldier or a well-equipped citizen in the modern age, they demonize it they want to outsource violence to the government completely. But even in Ukraine, they celebrated when the government finally gave the citizens permission to have arms to protect themselves. So they they understand the principle, but it's almost like, well, the government needs to give you permission to do it. And anyone that has any knowledge of war fighting, of combat, understands the necessity to be trained, and to understand how to utilize your equipment and so this idea that well when the wolf is at the door or when they have crossed into our lands and now we're invading we'll just grab a bunch of guns and equipment and just hand it to the citizens and they'll magically know how to do it how to warfight. fight they'll magically have the right mindset of a warrior and understand what it takes to take another life and the reasons why you know without any time to meditate on that, to prepare for that, to understand the ramifications, to seek God's word diligently in knowing when that is the right answer and when that is the wrong answer. No, we're just gonna wait till the uh till the wolves have surrounded our flock and then you know throw them a gun and say, hey man, go at it. It doesn't, it's ridiculous. See, when when reality sets in, when we don't have the ability to just live in purely abstract thinking in our minds because we are safe in a someplace like ukraine where the reality is there's a foreign army invading your nation and killing your people we understand what the right answer is it's naturally revealed by the circumstance god's word only affirms it the natural let me say the natural revelation affirms what god's word universally declares um so why not build a culture of protectors what is what is evil about that what is unbiblical about that I think most men know that at the individual level at least or as a father I mean we've argued this in the last podcast that are you gonna sit idly by while someone you know ravages your family no you're not it's not God's call on your life so let's, uh, let's logically think this out, take that to the next degree, the next degree, the next degree. Isn't it only logical that as men of a community, as a city state, as whatever your local governance is, it, that we would come together as men to protect our people, it only makes sense. So why not make that part of our culture, a militant citizenry under the lordship of Christ, fulfilling the commandment to love our neighbor within the guidelines of God's word. It's a powerful thing, and we should strive for that. We should come together to to do that. So let's let's go over some Christian objections, huh? Because undoubtedly, there's going to be some. Uh, There's some I thought of kind of counter, counter argue. Cause I mean, look, you look at modern, you know, big evangelical, you look at anything, uh, you, you talk about violence at all, or even just any kind of really masculinity at all, in a sense that where there's any sense of aggression or the idea to like be a protector and what that takes. And it's, uh, it's frowned upon. And I think it's because we have that misrepresented idea of who Christ was and therefore of who we should be. But let's get into it. All right, the early church. When the early church was being progressed, you know, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, were they building armed militias, Mikey? That's one question I would ask myself. If this is a biblical principle, and this is what every local community does, why don't we hear about it in the book of Acts, you know, as, as Peter as Paul and the other apostles are going to Corinth and Galatia and all these places and they're establishing uh, churches and local communities. Why don't we have anything in their letters saying, hey, make sure and arm up and equip yourselves to protect each other. Um, The first thing I'll say is no, they weren't formulating armed militias or anything of that sort, but the apostles were the foundation Christ being the cornerstone, that advanced the gospel, which would eventually conquer an empire. Christianity Christianized the Roman Empire. God, in his work through the Holy Spirit and his church, Christianized and thus conquered the paradigm, the worldview, the mind of the Roman Empire at large. for God by the spirit. So you had the the apostles under the ministry of the spirit's leading establishing these these local communities and if you look at church history they were they were established and they started to flourish and then they were violently persecuted by the Roman Empire. And you had, you had Christians serving in, in the Roman armies, and that was where the persecution began. One of my favorite stories in history that speaks so much to my life is the story of Marcellus the Centurion. Look it up. But that was where a lot of the persecution began in the armies throughout the peoples. And then um, the Christians suffered and, and stood firm. And then in the age of Constantine, uh, something happened there. God used Constantine, in whatever capacity, and then the church ended up flourishing out of persecution and conquering an empire. And so, our church fathers of that age, the Roman people looked to them and said, "How then? How shall we live as a people? As understanding Christ as King? How shall we? Uh, how shall we?" live as a people how shall we govern ourselves so the church fathers had to seek throughout the entirety of scripture a political theology right christ is lord of all of life and we don't just tuck them away in our in our private life in our private devotional time or even within just our little church organizations we understand that christ is king And sovereign of everything and he calls us to live a certain way in every sphere so we should seek how we should live politically culturally socially and we should strive to do what our church fathers have done which is Christianize the people led by the Spirit preaching the gospel preaching and showing love to our neighbors and expressing the worship of our Lord in every aspect of our lives So although the church fathers weren't building militias, like in the time of the, the apostles, as the church progressed and advanced in the power of the spirit, um, the church fathers had to look, how, how are we to live as a people now, as, as Christ is Lord over this nation and its culture? And so these church fathers, when when looking to the men of these nations of these city states within the Roman Empire, would have said, obviously according to God's word, hey, your role is to be a protector of your people. And even if you look to the time of Paul, obviously in his epistles, it is him that tells the men to act like men, and to give their lives up for their wives, as Christ does the church, to love their neighbors. To declare to the church of Corinth, love protects. And I think in those generations, and just like most generations, despite our postmodern one, they would have looked at that command to act like men. And they would have understood that as men of their community, they protect their neighbors and their community. It would have been much more uh, present in their minds. It would have been much more apparent Based upon their circumstance, that this is this is part of their call, and so as we look to we look across the realm of of the world and, and the different places where the gospel is spreading, um, and we understand that that this call uh, to to formulate a a militant citizenry for people in hostile cultures this may not be a discerning response. Right? I'm not saying this is like as soon as you you spread the gospel, you know. If if you're a missionary, if you're going in especially hostile places, you know, China, North Korea, portions of the Middle East, uh, you know, America. In five years, just kidding. It, you you don't just you know build a little house church and say now we're now we're going to formulate a a armed contingent. Um, we trust God. And we understand that uh, this isn't maybe a discerning response in in places like this where there's severe suffering and persecution and and hostility against, you know, large swaths of governing authorities. And so there's different ways of advancing God's kingdom in that moment and protecting, right, Uh, the underground church, fleeing, hiding in secret. Gathering in secret, worshiping in secret, um, spreading the word in secret, uh, doing these things, you know, doing the spiritual warfare within these places, infiltrating, spreading the word. Uh, but as the gospel is successful, like we said, we trust God with this, for it is God's work, not our own. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit according to the finished work of Christ, not our own just as he conquers these nations by by bringing more men into the fold, these nations come to a place where they say, how then shall we organize ourselves as Christians? And then they can thus say, we should organize ourselves to have a society of men that are physically ready and trained to fight. Because it guards us from what we just went through: tyranny and persecution. And in the West, as I as I argue for this within our culture now, you know, we obey the fifth commandment. We honor the legacy of our fathers. We build upon what they have built. We look at we go back to Ephesians 2, right? Christ the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, the foundation, and the whole structure being joined together, we're all growing into a holy. Temple. that is the that is the, the historical process and progress of the church as part of that so if we live in a land that has a rich Christian history from the time of the Reformation onwards to the Puritans who came to this land and then our forefathers that built this society within the church based off these principles we should build upon these principles honor their legacy so the word says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has giving you. We don't just we don't just give it up the legacy of our fathers and violate the fifth commandment for the sake of trying to live in this disgusting culture we live in now. We are to continue to fight and wage the good warfare and for the battles of the minds and hearts of the people, but in arguing for our Christian culture, we should build upon this legacy and say, hey, we build, we build a culture of strong, strong godly men that stand ready to fulfill their call to protect at a, not just the individual level, but as a tribe, as a community, as a neighborhood. And while we're on the subject of persecution, I argue this is a protection against persecution. And some would, would probably reel at that statement, like, "What, what?" I mean, the Bible tells us to endure, to patiently suffer. But does that mean we never physically defend against persecution? Ever? Let's uh, let's talk it out. So let's go to 1 Peter 3. This is uh, verses 19 and 17. <sighs> or, I'm sorry, verse 9 and 17. Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, then Romans 12, this is Paul to the church of Rome. This is verse 14 and then verses 17 through 21. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, And repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. (laughs) To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I believe many in the church today would read those verses and say, clearly, clearly, if we're being persecuted, we should never use violent force to defend ourselves. We should not avenge ourselves or repay evil for evil. But I think we've argued, and I question if I should do a full exegesis on when violent force is appropriate for Christians, and in fact, good, um, and that, that would be very a very exhaustive thing. Because I hit on it a lot, especially when talking about as men, but I think we've made it clear through some of our podcasts that there are times where God calls you to violently defend that which you love. So is that in fact evil? And I don't believe it is. His word it says here, "If as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, do what is honorable as seen by all." And so we th- we have this idea where many of us in the Christian faith will say, "Okay, if someone's um if someone's here banging on my door to declare their their intent it's, they just have the criminal, malicious intent to, you know, ravage and murder my family. I can protect them. I can protect my family. I can do that. And even if I'm walking down the street and I see my neighbor being violently assaulted um, by a criminal who just has evil, malicious intent, I can, I can physically defend them. Yes, that's true. But if the group of Sick and twisted men come to my front door and bang on the front door and say, yes, I am here to rape and ravage and murder your family. Uh, 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 but I'm doing it specifically because they're Christians. I'm here to persecute you. Suddenly, I'm to open the front door and clasp my hands together and say, God bless you, have mercy, turn from your sins and sit idly by and forsake my, my role as man, a protector of my family as they're raped and ravaged for the sake of suffering persecution, right? I mean, what what is this? That's We live too much in the abstract in, in our Christian faith here. It's ridiculous, right? What is honorable to all for, to protect that which we love? And simply because whoever comes to my front door and they're doing it specifically because we are Christians doesn't mean that I can't the the call to defend my family suddenly goes away. What I'm doing is not evil. I'm not repaying evil for evil. I believe what Peter and Paul are talking about here is that evil idea of retaliating with with fleshly hatred, right? With giving in to the anger of our flesh and retaliating with vengeance in mind and not seeking to defend uh, justly because we are defending in love. So we have this idea that any physical action whether we're being persecuted or attacked is somehow a, a violent action of, of pure revenge. And I don't think we we are properly distinguishing between justice and vengeance, you know. If someone, a persecutor or a group of persecutors or the governing authority who has a flag on their shoulder is coming to persecute my family to kick down my front door. To imprison my family, to throw them into the gulag, and to warp their minds, or to rape and ravage and murder them, you know if i was if I was committing violent acts out of pure vengeance out of the out of the hatred and anger of my flesh, like we would go down a dark path, right? This is the stuff you read about in history, where I just don't deal with the person responsible. I am going to repay evil for evil. I'm going to burn their village to the ground. I'm going to slaughter their women and children. You know, that is vengeance. And that is what we are not called to do. In fact, it is better to feed them and to give them something to drink. But in the pure defense of of my, my family or my neighbors, to say I can't do that, I can't do it now because... They are specifically being violently threatened because they are being persecuted for their Christian faith. I think that's contrary to God's word. It is clear we we pray for those who persecute us. And yes, we preach the gospel to them. And in times of turmoil, our own personal enemies, we may even be called as their neighbor to defend them, right? What if our, our personal persecutors that are amongst our community, they revile us, they despise us, they would rather... They would rather spit on us than speak to us. But then there's something that occurs within our society, whether it's, it's collapse, anarchy, um, or even foreign invasion, or civil conflict. It is this call to be a militant citizen that would call me that despite them being in essence my enemy, I would use violent force to defend them, to declare and show my love for them so i'm not i'm not using evil to overcome evil i'm overcoming evil with good for it is good to defend that which you love that is good and even if you look to the age of the apostles the apostles if there was any if like they didn't just they're being persecuted possibly imprisoned or martyred you know they didn't just um they didn't just put their neck on the block you know there are many times where the apostles fled persecution. When Paul is imprisoned for declaring the gospel, he evokes his rights as a Roman citizen to guard against suffering. And God sovereignly used the civil magistrate, the Roman garrison and army, to physically defend and protect Paul from persecution in Acts 22 and 23, right? the the Jews were going to rip him to pieces for declaring the gospel. And the commander of the garrison saw this and used his forces to physically enter into the fray to pull Paul out. And then these same Jews plan to ambush and murder Paul and his relative hears of it and, and speaks to Paul. And Paul says, tell this to the, to the commander of the garrison. And the commander of the garrison formulates an entire cohort of soldiers, of of swordsmen, of spearmen, of cavalry, to protect and guard Paul against violent suffering and persecution. And the Lord says to him amongst this, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And throughout this process, the Lord in his sovereignty utilizes armed people to protect Paul against persecution. The Roman tribune prepares a cohort of soldiers to physically guard Paul against persecution and escort him. And so based upon the universal principles of good in God's word to defend that which we love and understanding that as men, that may require us to physically defend to utilize violence to burn down anyone that would seek harm against that which we love could we not utilize the same defensive actions against persecution I think I think so I I don't think it's something where like I said it's it's the reality of the situation I'm not I, i'm not going to look at my call as a man as a protector and say in this situation yes in this situation yes like i have to seek out the intent of those seeking to harm those whom i love you know if they but sit there and declare well this is because we're persecuting you as christians my friend then, then i just lay down my sword and say uh please don't it's a ridiculous notion and it's unbiblical i would argue it's unbiblical You know, let's look at, uh, you know, most would agree if someone invades your country, you know, most Christians would agree. If someone invades our country for political aspirations or conquest or power, yes, we have a military and we should defend ourselves and fight. We can do that. But what if it is because we have become what would some see as a Christian nation. And now you have foreign invaders saying, we are going to invade and conquer you because of the specific fact that you are Christians. We are coming to persecute you on a large scale. We are committing total war against your nation because you are Christians. Do we need to but our idea of suffering persecution, of sitting, you know, weakly there to just accept it? Is that what we should do? Is that what our armies would do? I think most would say, obviously, no. It is. It does not line up biblically. Um, and it's just outside of the realm of, of reality to think that way. And I'm just bringing this up because I think a lot of Christians, you know, when they look at suffering, persecution, you know, warfare. <laughs> talk to any warfighter, especially over the last 20 years. Warfare is suffering. Like, we, we look at the word suffering in scripture, and we think that suffering means that we, um, we suffer imprisonment, we suffer beatings and insults, and we are never, like, we're not suffering if we're not defending against it. And I, I think that's, and I'm not saying we defend against every act of persecution. Yes, there are times, you know, um, you're spit on, you're insulted, you're slapped, you're beat. Um, your business is ruined, you're, you're fired from your job. These aren't places where we're suddenly going to use physical action. No, this is a very discerning thing. What I'm talking about is in those extreme circumstances where the persecutors are now coming for those that you love, uh, your your fellow church community, your family, and they're saying, we are going to slit your throats and rape your, rape your women and children. I think as men of the church, we stand as a wall and say, Not today. God calls me to defend that which I love. We are still suffering, right? We are suffering warfare. We are suffering conflict. We are suffering death by fire and sword. But that does not mean we are never called to defend, whether that's us as a Christian nation, as a local Christian community. And I'm getting, man, I'm digressing. Why am I getting into all of this? Because an armed militant citizenry is a good thing that guards against this. It guards against this, and that's why we need to do it, right? And what if the civil magistrate becomes tyrannical to the extent that he would fulfill Satan's desires and violently seek out the church from their homes? You know, just because the group of bandits outside my door have a flag on their shoulder, I, I don't suddenly cow in the corner and plead with them as they ravage my family. Going back to to Peter and Paul's assertion, like we we don't overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. It is not evil to protect. I want to emphasize that. That is a good thing. And therefore the fulfillment of the divine commandment. And so even under persecution, that's what I'm getting at here. When we are persecuted specifically for Christians, to say that we should never physically use violence to defend ourselves is untrue. And I hope in my little meditation here, I could convince you of that. Um, We're not going to fully digress into that, but I hope that I can at least convince you of that. And the idea that as we establish a Christian culture and people within a nation or city or community, we know that Building a culture of of men as protectors on a level where they could come together as a fighting unit and defend is a guard and protection against persecution. And we should do that for that is good. If we have the ability to flourish and to guard against persecution, we should do it. It is good. Persecutions may come and we suffer, but we fight and we seek God's will and his grace and his strength to conquer it and then to flourish you know good men are dangerous men and they are the guard the wall against the people in a tyrannical government and that is why we should have this and that is why it is good and let's go to let's go to some examples here Our first example is the great Ulrich Zwingli. This guy was a straight warrior. He was one of the greatest reformers of the age at the start of the reformation in Switzerland. And he reformed a city. He didn't just relegate it to his private life or even within the church. But he utilized his, his position um, as a chaplain, as a pastor, as a thinker, as a theologian, and um, you know, reformed the theology of the people and their knowledge of God. But what was the fruit of that? That was a reformed church and then a reformed city and people. Well, because of this, they were persecuted and Zwingli being a lover of his people in place, being a love of his community and his city. He grabbed a battle ax, armed himself and went to battle as a chaplain to defend his people against an invading army of Catholics who sought to persecute his people for their faith in Christ as a reformed people. He went to protect his city, his people in his place as a Christian neighbor and leader amongst his people, he understood that as a Christian man, there must be a sense of militancy about me and my people. And he gathered his brothers to form the battle line and the wall to defend his city. You know, for years, if you look at Zwingli and I, man, I need to get into this guy because his, his story is powerful, but for years he sought gradual reform and peaceful transformation of the culture. Right, he didn't just he didn't look at the word and say, "We need to reform our theology, um, and so we're going to do this violently and quickly." And if you get in the way, there—that's the reason I have the sword. No, no, he was a man of God. He did not seek out violence. And even in in the reforming of their knowledge, he sought to do it gradually and peacefully, understanding that this this is going to be a process and. It, People needed to be patient, specifically the reformers. For this was a lot of this was earth shattering for the current paradigm of the time, but it needed to be done because the culture of the time had gone astray as far as their knowledge of God. But when the time came during this process, when his opponents say, We will not allow you to do this, this is unacceptable. And if you refuse to do it, we are going to gather. And we are going to invade and we are going to pillage and ravage and destroy your city Zwingli so knew what he must do for it was the good and right thing he grabbed his battle axe like a chad and he gathered with his men and he fought and that was where he died but he died doing god's work and these are the type of men we should strive to be for all of our neighbors For the sake of fulfilling our call to love them. This is who we should be. This is the culture we should propagate. This is the society we should cultivate. This is how we should raise our sons. I'm going to teach my son how to read his Bible, how to worship his God. I'm going to take him to church. I'm going to teach him manners. And then I'm going to teach him how to cycle uh, an AR 15. And I'm going to teach him what an L-shaped ambush is. And I'm going to teach him how to sustain himself in the woods and maybe some field craft and how to gather with other men and to shoot, move, and communicate. For it is good. It is good when it is under the lordship of Christ and when you are doing it out of love and and defense. Right? So another example. This is for a biblical account. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a warrior. This guy was the man. So Jerusalem was sacked, destroyed. And, um, Nehemiah was tasked by the emperor of the time. Was it Artaxerxes? I think so. And he was tasked with rebuilding Jerusalem. He was given permission. So he goes down there. Um, he was a eunuch part of the, you know, part of the Royal, um, group of counselors and officials. And he was given permission. So he goes down there to Jerusalem to reform the people. In essence, you read through Nehemiah's and Ezra's reforms, it was spiritual as well as physical work, rebuilding that, that nation, uh, its buildings, its temple, its walls, but most importantly, the hearts and minds of the people. Um, but as they were doing their work, Sumerians and other neighboring peoples sought to destroy the Jews, who were seeking to reestablish this culture of worship. They saw them as a threat. They did not want to see this uh, this neighboring people gather any strength or power. And these these enemies of Nehemiah and his and his fellow Jews, they did not want. Them to have the ability to effectively protect themselves, right? You read through the account; they didn't want them to rebuild the walls because they understood what this would mean, and they were conspiring to come together and destroy them. But Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah was a governing official of the royal court. He could have written letters to the emperor, gathered a few, you know standing forces to protect him, but he organized his people into a militant citizenry that was armed and organized for defense. And Nehemiah 4 is is a great account of this. I'm going to read through several verses, starting at verse 8. And it's speaking of all the neighboring enemies. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Those are verses 8 and 9. Let's go to 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. So we have the situation where Nehemiah is reforming the people. He's trying to rebuild the defenses of the city and and make it a a governing city-state again. And the neighboring enemies do not like that, and they conspire to thwart this plan to prohibit them from having the ability to properly protect themselves with defenses. Nehemiah hears this, and though he has the authority of the emperor, he utilizes the citizenry to defend themselves against persecution not regular forces. He gathers them. He organizes them. He equips and weaponizes them and utilizes them as an effective defensive force against this persecuting army that is coming after them. These people, are these these neighboring nations are specifically persecuting the Jews for reforming their faith, establishing a culture of worship of the one true God, and building themselves up as a a political power in the region. And we see here that a stalwart society of militant men dissuades potential tyrants and persecutors. A stalwart society of militant men dissuades potential tyrants and persecutors. We continue through Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're going to verse 17. So he established his people with weapons and with those who, uh, the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders and his sword strapped at his side while he built, had his sword strapped at his side. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes; each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so Nehemiah builds this. You, you can see clearly it was uh, it wasn't a bunch of individuals working uh, independently of each other, but Nehemiah formulated a society of militant men. He organized them, equipped them. He utilized strategy and tactics to effectively use the citizenry to protect themselves against this persecuting threat. And he thwarted the plans of his enemies. His enemies saw this. He saw this this defense that was in place and dissuaded them from going through with their plans of attack. They knew they could not prevail because of this effective society, this militant citizenry. I'm going to say it again because it's so true. A stalwart society of militant men dissuades potential tyrants and persecutors. Tyranny is satanic and it is not good. Persecution of Christians, although it is is good for Christians to suffer for standing for what is right, persecution is not good. The slaughter of the church is not good. It is it is evil. And at times it will come, and as the church, we stand strong against it. We do not back down. But through persecution, the gospel advances. God conquers through his church. He Christianizes peoples, cities, and states, and nations. And then we have now established ourselves as God's people, as the elect, as the saints, the conquerors and governors of a nation's culture. For we live within the people, within our communities, and we show them how to worship God with every aspect. And so it is good as we establish this culture to build a stalwart society of militant men in order to dissuade the potential tyrant and persecutor to say, we have gone through this. We have suffered it. We are building upon the legacy of our fathers who fought for us to flourish. And we will say as a people that we are filled with good and dangerous men who will stand as a wall against any tyrant or persecutor, foreign or domestic, for this is good. And this is the fulfillment of Of the command to love our neighbor this is the law summed up on a societal scale in the physical realm according to the spiritual command this is who we're called to be man as the gospel builds nations of christian people should we not order our people in this way to effectively guard against tyrants and persecutions the general principles of nehemiah's historical account should teach us to order ourselves in the same way we are not special in this time and place in the now we I'm, i'm at fault too we we tend to look and we can't help it because you know our subjective experience is our subjective experience but we tend to govern like all of history and reality according to that and so we we forget. We live too much in the particulars of life, and we and we are not properly tethered and attached to the universals, the universal truths that are good throughout the ages. And as I said uh, before, because of our modern age and our postmodern paradigm and worldview and and the institutions we have, and the outsourcing of bureaucracies, we we forget this good principle that the men of the local community should equip and organize themselves to protect their local community. But we need to get back to this and understand it. Because the wolves are always at the door. And we are without excuse as men. God has made it clear in his word, Right? Be a baker, be a carpenter, be an artisan, be a writer, an artist, business owner. That is all good. But have the basic knowledge and organization amongst your fellow men within your local tribe and community to come together and effectively fight. This is good, men. This is good. This is what we should strive for. What my favorite founding father, Samuel Adams. He was kind of um, just the spark that started the flame in Boston and Massachusetts, uh, that started a lot of this, uh, the prompt, the American Revolution. And a lot of them looked to him as as far as the the spiritual component. Samuel Adams was a Christ-following man and firmly believed that it was God, God's plan for them to live um, according to the universal principles of liberty and life and beauty and goodness and not under the authority of tyrants. And he has this letter. At least the source I got says this is a letter dated 30th December 1780. And it's... Uh, Samuel Adams to John Scolet. And he writes of his people in Boston. He says, I love the people of Boston. I once thought that city would be the Christian Sparta. But alas, will men never be free. They will be free no longer than while they remain Virtuous. Sydney tells us there are times when people are not worth saving, meaning when they have lost their virtue. I pray God this may never be truly said of my beloved town. Samuel Adams, as a Christian man, loved his people, the place that God had put him in, his local city, his community, and as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And as a member of the local church, he sought to establish a certain culture there governed by Christian virtue. And he sought a Christian Sparta. And that's really powerful when you understand some of the aspects, right? The, the aspects we all think of and kind of immortalize of the Spartans was their sense of martial discipline, their fearlessness in battle, Um their understanding of who they were. And so we, like Sam Adams, should seek this Christian Sparta, this this community that is established by a culture of martial discipline. And let us not forget it is a Christian Sparta and Christian virtue and we are always governed by love. It is, it is the compassion of Christ dwelling richly in our hearts that drives us to do any of this. We are not to be stone and cold and calculated in this and um, be lovers of violence by any means, but we, we strive to become a militant citizenry to sharpen the edge each and every day, to be physically ready, to be able to utilize our tools, to be able to communicate with our teammates because we are driven by the divine love, by the compassion and gentleness of Christ that demands that as men, we be protectors of our people. And so within this, let's establish that culture of discipline. Every man know how to shoot, move, and communicate, for these are the laws of basic tactics in combat. And let us equip every man. You look to the old ways of the Greeks, the early times in the Roman Republic, it was citizen soldiers equipping themselves. When when it was time for the city state to go to battle, the man went into his closet and grabbed his armor and equipment and he went. And so individuals within our community should have the ability and capability to equip themselves with arms, with armor, with all the other tools necessary to be a militant citizenry in our modern age. If we go to the American context, because I am American, um, but I would argue these should be principles of every nation that is Christianized, and that becomes a free republic. I look to like the uh, to the Second Amendment, right? And we we discern the Second Amendment uh, according to God's universal standards, like anything. And I, you know, I don't like to. See, I, I hate all these terms like gun culture, or i am am a I'm a two A guy. Nah, dude, I'm a Christian, and my worldview is that of Christ and his Bible. And so I understand that according to the political theology of God's word, says that God ordained government to be a good thing, but it is limited. Because God made men with a sense of volition, and they should have the liberty to exercise that will to the glory and praise of God. So I'm a limited government liberty guy and I understand I've argued this entire time that a militant citizenry guards against an overreaching government and firmly establishes within its place liberty. Cuz we understand that the the very idea of rights you know people talk about human rights whatever rights but individual rights and liberties are what they are because our nation was founded upon a worldview, or I'll say a, uh, Glenn Martin calls it a conglomerate worldview. It was kind of the combining of enlightenment, rationalism, and biblical Christianity, but they both had this in common that There is an authority higher than government and that authority has given us rights that government cannot take away. Government is not the highest authority. And so a militant citizenry limits the government and it is objectively good when the participants submit to the Lordship of Christ as with all things. The right to liberty demands people have the right regardless of how the magistrate feels about it we must be able to effectively arm ourselves to defend against a tyrant that would seek to oppress us. This is good. It establishes a society that flourishes in that liberty. Each individual being led by God for each man is a king. That's one of the presuppositions of Christianity. Every man is prophet, priest, and king, as we talked about. And so as a king, he can seek God to be led to exercise his liberty to worship God within the civil society, the culture, and the place according to his conscience. And this armed citizenry is ever vigilant and ever present to guard that civil society as it flourishes and worships God. And I do think you know you talk you know whatever gun problem, you know we do have a problem. For we have an immoral people, and our culture, our society is being led by a worldview that is wicked and evil. And God has given us rights: rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, our property, and. According to those rights, we should have the capability to defend ourselves. But rights require, in order for a society to flourish that is free, it requires a virtuous people. This is what Samuel Adams is really getting to in his letter to John Scollet. You read the entirety of the letter, specifically talking about the need for a virtuous people, and he was seeking a Christian Sparta for the idea of a Christian Sparta would be a virtuous people, a people living that their minds, hearts, and souls are governed by the virtues of Christ, of truth, of goodness, of all that is beautiful. And according to that virtue, they are a militant people that stand ready to love one another, defend one another, fight for one another as they flourish together. Many of the founding fathers read the letters. They understood in order for the Republic to work, they needed a moral and religious people. And right now we don't, we have an immoral people, right? So do we really have, according to our um, immorality, the ability to have these rights, to have these guns, you know? And some would say no. But here's here's what I'm getting at. Some would say the, pollu- the, the solution is to have the government be the monopoly on violence, to have the monopoly on violence because, well, it's the governing authority and they're the experts and the officials and they're there for our good. And only they have the um, capability to to exercise violence, to protect us from ourselves. I would argue like with any of these situations, the solution is not tyranny (laughs) to prop up a tyrant in order to protect ourselves. The solution is to be a more virtuous people. That is what we need. So any, you know, the gun problem, the crime problem, you know, abortion, all these wicked, awful things that are occurring. We don't give up our liberties to prop up a tyrant with some really vain and ridiculous idea that the tyrant will protect us. No, we need a more virtuous people. So it's incumbent upon the elect the people of God to one we need to repent of our sins because of our failures and then strive to propagate that Christian culture that we can once again have a virtuous people that can properly exercise these liberties so as we close here we look at the we further look at the culture of the values of what it, that are expressed within this uh, this idea of a militant citizenry, militant Christian men who are ever standing ready to protect their neighbors, and we take wisdom from our professional war fighters and our sword bears, you know, in especially in light of the recent American conflicts we've gone through, you know, twenty years of conflict, and we have a lot of good men who have been through a lot, who have been taught some valuable lessons. And, you know, in the realm of law enforcement, it is an ever-going conflict and fight and people just having tons of experience. And so these these professionals, right, We we want to eliminate within our culture, our Christian culture, any sense of divide between the professional and then every citizen that is called to be prepared for conflict. You know, the professionals shouldn't use their experience to be some sort of gatekeeper to knowledge, but as fellow members of the same culture, and especially as fellow brothers in Christ, they should use the experience God has given them to advance the capability of their brothers and their fellow citizens. You know, to sit around the fire and to teach and warn the brethren about the horrors of combat. But so prepare them, for this is our way and our culture, that every citizen understand that they may be called to this fight given the circumstance. And so the professionals enter into the fold and utilize their experience, their training, To build up their fellow citizens with the mindset that they have the same capability and preparation and so it is it is men from every background learning the lessons from their brothers who have been into the fray striving together in this purpose and knowing they can sit around the fire and show vulnerability to build each other up to know that it is okay to not be okay that we gather as brothers in the faith iron sharpening iron coming together um, in those vulnerable places that we would build each other up in the power and grace and wisdom of god and express his love to one another that brotherly love You know, we can come together and promote Christian virtue within our community by being men who are ever ready to defend our community. And we understand our mission and our willingness to fight because we are compassionate creatures. To be warriors because we are creatures of love. We are reformed by the righteousness of Christ in his character by his spirit. And we are led in his spirit and make no doubt about it. That is a warrior spirit. But we know that Christ fought the good fight for us and he continues to do so from his throne in glory at the right hand of the father, conquering his enemies because he loves and he is our God of compassion and mercy and steadfast love. And that is what drives him to enter the fray. And so we stand as Christian men, called to be militant citizens, to get with our tribes, man, our brothers, and to equip ourselves to train together, to sharpen each other, praying that as long as it is up to us, we live peaceful, quiet lives, flourishing, building families, continuing to cultivate this worship in peace, but knowing the reality of a fallen world and that at any moment, if the wolves would come to threaten our neighbors, that we will stand as a wall for our people. And according to the compassion within our hearts, we will burn them to the ground. And so I leave you with the words of Joab. Joab was a interesting character during the time of David. He wasn't the best of men, but in the midst of the fight, it's one of my favorite accounts in scripture his army is surrounded and he essentially splits the army with him and his brother commanding and they formulate a strategy and then he leaves his brother with this be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our god and may the lord do what seems good to him And so we too, as a reformed people, look to our sovereign God who loves us, understanding that his will be done. But within that will, by faith, we walk and fight and love and feast and drink and suffer and fast and mourn. Um, But it is all beautiful and it is all good. And we will gather as men to cult Cultivate a, a society of dudes that are strong, that understand their call to protect. And they will do so together as a community, as a people, as a citizenry. I think I'm going to end it there. I just feel like I've been ranting, but um, I think it's been good. As I've meditated on this. Whether you agree with me or not, I hope you have some things to meditate on as well. Seek God and his word. Be led by his spirit to do what he has deemed good and right and true. And we'll unite together in this cause. So until next time, my friends, be strong in the Lord. Fight the good fight of faith. Sing your war song.